Welcome to Eye to Eye, the podcast of the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. My name is Sunil Mamtora, and I will be your host. Welcome to a series of special episodes in lieu of the College Congress that would have been. In this first episode, we spoke with Professor Andrew Lottery about the Vichy trial where the efficacy of a plerinone was evaluated for the treatment of central serous chorioretinopathy. We then hear from authors of abstracts, which had been accepted for presentation as posters. So Professor Lottery, thank you very much for joining me today to talk about CSR and the new treatments for this, or suspected treatments for this. I was just wondering to start with, could you tell us a bit about the history of the use of aplerinone for CSR and what the evidence is for it? Sure, thank you, and thanks for organising this. Um, So there's been some animal studies in the past uh, by a researcher, uh, Frances Behar-Cohen, where she injected uh, corticosteroids and mineral corticoids into rats and and observed that this caused the choroid blood vessels to dilate in, in the eyes of these rats. And this could be reversed, this dilation of choroidal vessels could be reversed by uh, blocking mineral corticoid receptors uh, with mineral corticoid receptor antagonists. And that's drugs like aplerinone and spironolactone. And so and so the hypothesis, we, we, with OCT, EDI, OCT scans now, we know that uh, in the majority of patients with central serous chororetinopathy, one of the fundamental features of the disease is that the choroid is dilated. And, and so it's thought that's important for the pathogenesis. And so following on from this observation, in the uh, animal models, Dr. Bahar Cohen then gave uh, a plurinone to some patients with central serous retinopathy and noted that the subretinal fluid in these patients uh, resolved quicker than control patients. Now, the, the studies where this were done were pilot studies uh, small numbers of patients with follow-up of maybe three or four months or maybe six months. They weren't randomised, uh, double-blinded trials, but it did seem that aplerinone and also spironolactone caused quicker resolution of subretinal fluid uh, in, in patients uh, with central serous chorioretinopathy. And just, just to say, because the recognizing that the choroid is is important in this disease it, the disease is often now referred to not as CSR but as CSCR meaning central serous chorioretinopathy putting more re- emphasis on the choroid which has been a, a relatively recent change. I mean I'm just interested you mentioned there that we do know in practice that the majority of the use of mineral corticoid receptor antagonists is with aplerinone um, but spironolactone is also in the same class, why, why do clinicians tend to choose aplerinone over spironolactone? Well, it's it's mainly well, there's um, it, it's interesting. There, there's a preference survey at the American Academy of Ophthalmology on on prescribing practices each year, and outside America, North America, spironolactone is the commonest mineral corticoid receptor antagonist used to treat central serous chorioretinopathy. And inside North America, aplerinone is the most common uh, mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. And, and mineral corticoid receptor antagonists have been the, the 
first choice drug therapy for central serous chororetinopathy for the last couple of years th- throughout the world. Um, the the reason for a plurinone over mineral over spironolactone is it's a more specific uh, mineral corticoid receptor antagonist, and therefore has uh, less off-target side effects. And the one, perhaps one of the biggest differences between the two drugs is the development of gynecomastia, which is much more common with spironolactone and. Because this is a disease that affects um, predominantly males, we thought a plurinone would people would be more likely to take, uh, uh, males would be more likely to take because it doesn't uh, cause gynecomastia in, in the same way that spironolactone has an increased frequency of that. Saying that, spironolactone is a lot cheaper in a plurinone, and I think that's why outside North America it's been chosen by many uh, physicians uh, uh, compared to North America where perhaps medical insurance picks up the extra cost of, of a plurinum. I mean, you also mentioned there that you know men get CSCR far more common than women, and I understand it to be approximately a five to one ratio. Is that right? Um, it, it depends on the different studies, but uh, but yeah, but that, that's about right. Uh, it's about 10 per 100,000 men and two per 100,000 women in the population develop CSCHR each year. Yeah, and I was just wondering, do we understand the reason behind this big massive difference between genders? Uh, we we don't, <laughs> is the honest answer. I mean, it's thought that stress and um, can be an exacerbating factor for the condition, and uh, men perhaps have more uh, adrenaline and uh, stress hormones versus women uh, circulating in their bloodstream. Um, but there's a lot of hy- there's a lot of hypothesis is not fully known. But um, it may be a difference between uh, the, the the sex hormones between men and women uh, with more m- more uh, you know s- stress related. Um, inducing hormones in men versus women that precipitates uh, it's more likely to precipitate CSCR but it's not it's, it's by no means fully understood uh, you know one thing I was wondering is that you know from my reading I've only recently appreciated that you know CSCR is more of a common cause of permanent sight loss than I had previously realized you know in my clinical practice I'm used to the majority of patients resolving spontaneously but I was wondering, you know what proportion of patients you know, do you have you noticed that you know resolve spontaneously, and what proportion of patients do have permanent sight loss? So I think about fifty percent of patients are have one episode, and it resolves spontaneously uh, with minimal side effects. Many patients um, might notice alterations in their contrast sensitivity, but their their visual acuity on a a Snellen chart would would be un, unaffected. Um, if you look at OCT scans, there may be some subtle thinning of of the retina, um, uh, even with an acute episode. But the majority of people don't have uh, significant vision loss with with one episode. However, in about maybe another fifty percent, 
can be a, a chronic relapsing condition. And uh, studies have suggested that up to a third of these patients can have permanent vision loss. And, and it, in people who have this over many years, uh, where they develop a, a diffuse uh, epitheliopathy of the retina pigment epithelium, they, um, they can um, lose vision down to the level of less than 660. So it, it can, it, 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 it's not well appreciated, but I think uh, for people who see a lot of CSCR, they do see some people, some patients who unfortunately have very severe uh, sight loss. And, and that's, that is under-recognized. And you know, from presentation, when the patient initially pre- presents with CSCR, have there been any studies to predict who will recover on their own or who might develop you know, a chronic relapsing com- condition? I'm not aware of any studies predicting that. I would say from my own clinical practice, if often you may see um, evidence of previous episodes of CSCR that the patient may not be aware of. So by doing tests like autofluorescence uh, or fluorescein angiograms or ICG angiograms, you may see uh, evidence of um previous central serous retinopathy, say in the other eye. And if you see evidence of previous episodes that the patient may not be aware of, then I think it's more likely they're going to have a chronic uh, relapsing condition. Um, the other group of patients who often uh, relapse are those who have to take um, uh, chronic steroids. And, and they can be very difficult to treat. So these can be immunosuppressed patients, patients with severe asthma. So, so patients who are ha- having to take uh, long-term uh, steroids tend to have a more p- prolonged course uh, of centrosius retinopathy, core retinopathy and, 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 it, and are harder to treat. Uh, and then there's other phenotypically classic patients with central serous cord retinopathy, someone in a, a very stressful life event or in um, very stressful jobs, they tend to continue to have uh, problems. So I can think of a patient of mine who was a, worked, worked in the fire brigade, was going through a divorce um, and had a car accident you know, lots of stressful things going on and, and and that sort of patient who's got a more stress, acute stress or chronic stress that isn't going away, perhaps because of their job or, or life events, dealing dealing with someone, you know, a family member of a chronic illness, that they they tend to have more of a relapsing condition as well. Okay, I mean those are some really useful clinical pearls. And now I'd just really like to ask you about what the listeners are probably most interested about, which is actually your study, mm. which investigated the efficacy of a pleronone in patients with chronic CSCR. Mm. I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit about your study. So th- this study was a double-blinded, randomized controlled clinical trial comparing uh, a, a pleronone pl- uh, plus usual care versus uh, placebo versus usual care 
And so patients were followed every three months for a year. And at each review, if they still had active central serous cord retinopathy, they continued on the treatment they'd been assigned. And if they fluid had resolved, they stopped treatment but remained in the study and, and were re- reviewed. And if they relapsed, they restarted the same treatment. And there were 114 people, patients randomised to the study. So this gave a sufficient power, statistical power, to detect a difference between the two groups um, of five letters read on a, on a vision chart, on an EVTRS chart, which we thought was a clinically significant, clinically relevant measure. So if they, whether we could detect whether you would see a line better, essentially on a vision chart with treatment for up to a year. And so this, patients were randomly assigned one-to-one to either the plurinone or the placebo group. And, uh, at the start of the study, we were, you know, we weren't sure whether uh, patients with CSCR would would agree to a year of potential placebo treatment uh, for this condition. Uh, but actually, the retention in the study was was really good. Uh, we had very few dropouts, and we had very good adherence, as judged by pill counts, to patients taking their treatment. And uh, we maintained randomization. Uh, we asked patients to guess which treatment they were on, and they got there was no correlation. They there was just random what 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 they guessed. So we had a a really well controlled randomized placebo controlled trial uh, with really good follow up with statistical power to detect a clinically meaningful difference in visual outcome in terms of uh, visual acuity as well as looking at other um, secondary endpoints as well. So what were the results of the study? So the results were that there was no uh, statistical difference in visual acuity outcomes over the 12 months uh, between placebo and the plurinum group. Um, And also for secondary outcomes, um, such as low luminance visual acuity, central subfield retinal thickness, um, macular atrophy, um, choroidal thickness, uh, there, there was no benefit of taking a plurinone. Indeed, the placebo group, actually their um, choroidal thickness was statistically better and, and, and le- reduced compared to the plurinone group at, at 12 months. So... Every measure we looked at, uh, unfortunately, showed no statistical benefit of taking a plurinone. And indeed, on some of the outcome measures, some of the structural outcome measures, the placebo group did did slightly, uh, did statistically better. So both looking at functional and structural outcomes, there was no benefit of a taking a plurinone. Which, on one on one level, was obviously disappointing, but on another level, uh, was really important because there can be side effects such as hyperkalemia uh, with taking a plurinone, 
and so there, and, and there could be lots of other rare side effects um, such as blood dyscrasias. So it, it's important people don't take this drug if, if it's of no benefit. So it should, uh, the trials should change practice. It should stop ophthalmologists from prescribing a plurinone. Um, and as I said, it's a first line treatment or it had been in the United States up until this study. And yeah, we need to, to look at new new treatments, basically. Um, so it, it, it stops us taking a drug that's of no, no benefit uh, and has potential side effects. Having read your paper, you've, you've touched on some of the other studies which have investigated the use and benefit of using a plerinone in CSCR. Um, and, you know, on the surface... You know, those other papers seem to have results which suggest that a plerinone is a useful treatment. Based on, you know, what you thought of those other papers, were you surprised by the results of the study? Um, I thought it would have some, I guess I, I, I thought it would have some benefit. The anecdotal feedback around the time we were starting the study was that patients who used a plerinone were not finding as dramatic an improvement as had been reported in the previous studies. So, but I still thought it would give some some benefit based on the previous studies. Um, I think what really this shows is that, um, well, there's several things. One, it's difficult to do clinical trials of central serous core retinopathy because it is a relapsing condition it can spontaneously improve so you do need to do a study in a very rigorous way with sufficient follow-up and 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 so people can read into an improvement due to a player known if they don't have a a blinded placebo group and and very few other studies had a a a proper placebo and that's really important in a condition where it can spontaneously uh, improve um, so they and I think you know a lot of those studies didn't have a proper control group they were retrospective uh, often they were short-lived just over three three months or six months there was inconsistencies in the length of follow-up between different patients they weren't they, they were often self you know self clinician investigator-led studies but not with defined observation points as you would have in a clinical trial so it, it i think it just highlights the the need to do proper prospective placebo-controlled trials to to really tease out whether there's a benefit or not and and you can be misled um and the literature in central serious cardiopathy unfortunately is littered with multiple potential treatments um, but without adequately powered studies to show that they uh, have a benefit and so you have to be very sceptical about small-scale studies retrospective often in nature without proper control groups and of course these to do a study like the one we did takes a lot of a lot of effort and that and, a, and it also requires funding and uh, 
uh, we're lucky in the United Kingdom that we can get studies like this funded. Um, a colleague of mine in the Netherlands, uh, Professor Boone, who does Centre Sears Core Retinopathy Research, is just you know jealous that that. Uh, there's no such funding, for example, in the Netherlands from from their government to do studies like this. So it it is challenging to do these studies. Um, this study was done in 22 centres across the UK, and you know it cost around just under a million pounds to do. Um, so it they are challenging studies to do, and that's why I think we have so many small scale retrospective studies without proper control groups and, and unfortunately that gives a you know a mixed or garbled message about how 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 um, important this, a, a treatment is of course yeah, that's obviously quite disappointing mm. i was wondering if you felt that if you felt that there might be any limitations of your study that could potentially have hidden any small unidentified benefit to using uh, mineral or corticoid receptor antagonists um that yeah there's always potential um so so uh i mean limitations could have been we we could have missed a short-term benefit because of the uh we were following people every every three months and so if if we'd had the resources um you know a sh- and being able to see people, for example, every four weeks, that would have provided more data, allowed a more detailed comparison response to treatment of pleurin and the placebo. Uh, and also a limitation of the trial was a need to discontinue treatment if CSCR resolved completely during follow-up or if an elevation in serum potassium levels was detected. And, and so we... And this might have reduced the observed treatment effect... Um, so we had a very a very um, low window f- for for discontinuing patients if they had hyperkalemia, and 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 so if anybody was over potassium level over five point zero, we discontinued them. Um, and in retrospect, we probably could have relaxed that to five point five, um, but we were being very cautious. Saying that, interestingly, there was more. Patients in the placebo group have a slightly high p- potassium than the, the plurinone group, which was also surprising. Um, uh, but we still had more than... An, our target sample size for a statistically relevant result was 90 patients, and so we had 114. So we still had, even with a few dropouts, we still had sufficient power to, to detect a significantly uh, different visual acuity result. I mean, from my experience as a house officer working on a cardiology ward, um, I recall, you know, spironolactone, uh, similar mineral corticoid receptor antagonist, you know, being associated quite commonly uh, with quite significant hyperkalemia. Um, I was just wondering, you know, what was your protocol for performing renal function measures and electrolyte measurements? Um, and I'm just assuming that you didn't have patients in the study who had heart failure or a predisposition to develop um, electrolyte abnormalities. Yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, these, these are otherwise pretty fit individuals, so very different to the patients these drugs are normally given to with, as you say, people with heart failure. Um, so we had baseline 
potassium levels and they were checked again after a week and then after a month the aplerinone was increased from uh, 25 milligrams a day to 50 milligrams a day uh, from providing potassium levels stayed in the normal range and so they had 25 milligrams a day for a week and then if potassium levels were okay they went up to 50 milligrams a day and were checked again um, uh, three three weeks later and if potassium levels were still normal they stayed on 50 milligrams a day which is the standard dose and then that was checked every every three months after that when at their uh, clinical trial review and as I say there was uh, very few cases that had a high potassium and these were relatively you know fit fit patients without heart failure so yes that it actually wasn't a bigger problem it wasn't a problem really in the study at all sure okay I mean so the conclusion of the study is essentially saying no more plerinone for patients with CSCR, which in a way is quite disappointing, mm. but useful, as mm. you said. Um, I mean, aplerinone has been the first-line treatment in some centres anyway um, for CSCR for a number of years now. So now that we're not going to be using aplerinone, um, are there any other treatments or trials or new treatments around the corner for CSCR? Well, the treatment that is most given in the United Kingdom is for the dynamic laser treatment. And again, there hasn't been really the same sort of randomised controlled clinical trial as we did for a plurinone yet, but certainly there's lots of reports and evidence that it is effective at uh, getting rid of su- subretinal fluid. Um, the limitation, of, of course, for the dynamic therapy is that there's only a small number of centres have the right sort of laser. Uh, these lasers are hard to, to come by now. They were originally used for age-rated macular degeneration, um, you know, a couple of decades ago. But it, it at the moment, seems the most likely treatment to um, to to give benefit. And I think we need more studies with photodynamic uh, laser therapy. Plurinone is the most common non-pharmacological treatment and it does seem to have an effect. Uh, but whether that translates into a, a functional benefit, i.e. An, an improved visual acuity or improved microperimetry, I don't think that's been fully established yet. And I think that's what we need to look at next. There aren't There aren't really... Any other drug therapies I'm aware of that really are showing promise as yet? Um, lots of things have been suggested. Melatonin, for example. Um, and there does seem to be another risk factor that's becoming apparent for central serous cord retinopathy is uh, night shift work. So there may be something in that. But again, like I think having learned a lesson from a player known, uh, we can't really say for sure without a proper proper study um, there's been a comparative study of photodynamic laser therapy with micropulse laser and there were the st- structural benefits were better with photodynamic laser therapy there hasn't been a long-term 
improvement in visual acuity demonstrated in that study. And again, unfortunately, the, the study that was performed in the Netherlands looking at micropulse laser, the photodynamic laser therapy, didn't have a control group, which makes it difficult to say whether there was a, a functional improvement. So, so we definitely need a lot. It's a still a very enigmatic condition, and we definitely need a lot more research to to get to understand this condition, uh, particularly as it is uh, more sight threatening than I think a lot of people appreciate. You know, one other area that I'm hearing clinicians talk about and reading about as well is an association between CSCR and Helicobacter pylori. What are your thoughts on that association? Um, I mean, that's been described quite a while. Um, again, I don't think there's very strong evidence that that's true. Um, and, and really the same answer that we would have to do a prospective study to, to look at that. We, you know, when we first were applying for funding for the Vici study, looking at the Plurinone, we did want to take other measures such as look at its pylori and the, uh, the grant review body uh, didn't feel there was, there was sufficient evidence to justify that um, and, and so we weren't able to do that. So I think its pylori has been associated with many diseases and I'm, I'm not sure there's a, the evidence is that strong. Okay, that's really interesting. So I'm assuming then you don't routinely ask about gastrointestinal symptoms or perform H. pylori serology even in re refractive cases of CSCR no, then? No, okay. no, we don't, no. Um, so just one final question I wanted to ask you is, you know, would you have any, you know, take, specific take-home messages for listeners who may have, you know, CSCR patients in front of them? I think um, ask about steroid use and often, and another curious thing about this condition is that uh, some people can be seen to be very sensitive to steroids, so you know you can often find uh, a history of people taking steroid creams or steroid injections in their joints, or as I say, long-term oral steroids. And if and if people are on steroids, try to minimise their exposure to them. And I think if you know, if, if patients have chronic central serous core retinopathy where there's active fluid more than uh, four months and, and particularly, you know, if it's not, it's not a, a reduction in that fluid over time, then after four months, you probably need to think about treatment. And at the moment, I think the only, you know, the treatment that we're, we're, we're certainly doing in Southampton, not many other places, is half dose for the dynamic laser therapy. And, you know, look, look carefully at both eyes, look at, and it can be, a, a, and, and I think, you know, like most conditions in retina, uh, we're using more multimodal imaging. So, you, um, you know, OCT angiography can sometimes also show coronary vascularization that possibly can be treated with an anti-VEGF, um, which may not otherwise be obvious. And uh, all the fluorescence, as I say, can show that there's evidence in of previous episodes, which might make you think this is more likely to be a chronic condition. So, yeah, I mean, I think um, try to avoid steroid use, use multimodal imaging to 
really phenotype your patients. And at the moment... Don't use a pleuronym. Don't use a pleuronym. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, well, thank you so much, Professor Lottery. That's been really, really interesting. And I hope that's been really useful for the listeners as well. Well, thank you for organising it again. Thank you, Sue. We now hear from Connor Lyons, an ophthalmology trainee from the Stanley Eye Unit in North Wales. He spoke with me about his abstract entitled A Retrospective Analysis of Micropulse Transscleral Cyclophotocoagulation. So thanks so much for joining me to talk about your abstract and, you know, your experience of using micropulse laser as a treatment for glaucoma. But, you know, before we talk about your results, I was just wondering if you could tell the listeners a bit about what exactly is micropulse laser? Uh, so micropulse laser is a form of laser used to treat uh, patients with glaucoma. It emits finely controlled uh, thermal energy that targets uh, the melanin-containing cells of the ciliary body. So it's a form of transscleral cyclophotocoagulation, but where it differs from conventional um, photocoagulation is that it's pulsed. So the amount of thermal energy is more regulated and there tends to be less damage to surrounding tissues in the ciliary body. Initially it was used in the same, uh, for the same purposes as um, conventional cyclophotocoagulation in patients with advanced vision loss or where all other treatments had failed. But as more reassuring data has been published, it's been gaining popularity in patients with less severe vision loss. Um, as it has a, a lower side effect profile. Um, in our practice, we had the micropulse laser um, and we use it for patients who declined surgery or who wanted to try a less invasive procedure or as an interim procedure to delay surgery. Mm. That's really interesting. And, you know, in your current clinical practice, you know, with COVID-19, have you found that you're using it as a treatment in patients where, you know, trabeculectomy simply isn't possible due to theatre constraints? Well, actually, we only had the micropulse laser on trial for three months. So we had a cohort of 34 patients that we did then, and we've been following them for three months after that point because we wanted to check the efficacy before we purchased it. So it oh, hasn't really come into usage during the COVID crisis. Ah. So what did your study show? So we uh, had 34 patients who had micropulse laser. Uh, 29 had straightforward micropulse. Five patients, or six patients we, sorry, five patients we combined with cataract surgery. Um, patients ranged in age from 61 to 99 years old. And interestingly, visual acuity was very variable amongst the group. So many patients had visual acuity of 6.6 or better. Um, several had advanced vision loss as well. Um, so out of the 34 patients, all patients recorded a reduction in um, intraocular pressure at month one. And 33 patients, all but one, recorded a reduction in IOP in pressure at uh, month three. Um, so it was effective. We also found that no one patient recorded a reduction in visual acuity, but the rest had no reduction in visual acuity, and it had quite a low rate of complications in, in our cohort as well. I mean, that sounds very promising. Um, but, you know, what are the disadvantages? Um, and you know, did you see any complications in the patient group? 
So in our patient group, we had one patient who developed a severe uveitis. This did settle with topical um, anti-inflammatory medication. Um, and another patient who had a subconjunctival hemorrhage, um, which meant that we had relatively few complications compared to conventional cyclodiode. Um, but there are complications noted, so things like uveitis, cystoid macular edema, progression of cataract, rarely hypotenus maculopathy, uh, corneal edema, and uh, post-operative pressure spikes have been noted. It's not uncommon for patients to, to report pain afterwards, um, but typically this can be managed with uh, oral analgesia. Um, in relation to the second part of the question, what are the disadvantages? Um, are the well to be honest there doesn't seem to be many major disadvantages um, because of the low side effect profile if you look at the literature that's been coming out in the last two or three years success rates vary from 60 to 80 percent um, each study uses a different definition of success but it does seem to offer a, a quite a safe alternative in kind of the glaucoma arsenal Okay, that's really interesting. You know, just one final question, if that's okay. You know, um, you know, if you could just tell me a bit more about you know what the literature tells us about this topic, and you know how well do your findings correlate with the literature? Yeah. So, as we had such a short follow-up period, um, we didn't really put a definition on success. We used drop-in intraocular pressure as kind of our main marker. Um, and in our group, the average intraocular pressure starting off was 22, but this ranged from 15 to 52. Um, the pressure dropped uh, to a mean of 15 at one month and stayed at 15 at three months. And as I said, all but one patient had a drop in pressure by the three-month period. If you look at uh, similar studies, um, there seems to be a reduction in intraocular pressure, uh, sorry, a mean reduction in intraocular pressure between 29% and 52%. Um, and as I said, dependent on the definition of success, a success rate is between 60 and 80%. Early studies did seem to focus more on refractory glaucoma, but in the last two years, a lot of studies have shown its usefulness in patients with good vision. And similarly, looking at complication rates, um, all studies have showed a low rate of site-threatening complications compared to standard cyclodiode or operative um, procedures like trabeculectomy. Sure. Well, thank you so much for joining me today to speak about your work. Oh, no problem. Anna Song is a Foundation Year One doctor working in Newcastle. She talked to me about her abstract entitled Keratoconus, Is It Reversible? So Anna, thank you very much for joining me today. Could you tell the listeners a bit about your work? Yes, thank you very much for having me, Sunil. Um, so just to begin, I'd just like to give a bit of background information on keratoconus, just because my research is based upon it and it's quite uh, important information. So in keratoconic, in keratoconus, um, the keratocytes in the corneal stroma, they uh, have been found to behave slightly differently to those keratocytes in a normal corneal stroma, uh, in that they produce um, elevated levels of proteinases that break down um, the connective tissue, uh, well, the connective collagen fibrils 
uh, in the stroma leading to disorganization. And my research, which I completed uh, during my intercalating year at medical school, um, looked into uh, growing in vitro um, models of keratoconus uh, to explore this further and to determine uh, whether anything could be used to perhaps reverse this condition. So uh, this is predominantly a lab-based project um, which uh, took um, keratocytes uh, from corneal buttons um, and grew these onto a curved surface to simulate the environment of the cornea into a thin layer of corneal stroma. And um, sort of different aspects were um, looked at, including the way that these cells proliferated, um, the organization of the fibrils that they produced, and also the gene expression of these uh, components. Okay. So where did you get your tissue samples from? So um, the tissue samples were from either patients that uh, received um, uh, corneal surgery um, or from cadaverous uh, samples. So you mentioned there that you've got two groups, um, you know, you've got your keratoconic donor tissue and you've got your healthy corneas and you compared them. Did you see any significant differences between the two groups? Yes, so uh, in the normal uh, corneal um, keratocytes, they uh, produce a level of um, Kera and ALDH3A1, uh, which is what you would normally see in a corneal tissue, um, and low levels of what we call matrix metalloproteinase, which is a, an enzyme that can break down a collagen. Whereas in the keratocytes, um, normally, uh, in the keratoconic keratocytes, they tend to produce an elevated level of these MMP1s, which breaks down uh, the corneal stroma, uh, which can lead to sort of the thinning um, and the protrusion of the cornea, as you would see in keratoconus. What was really interesting in my research was um, there was a model which I used to grow uh, these uh, cells and I added uh, retinoic acid to it. And what that was actually able to do, which was very surprising, was uh, its effect on the keratoconic cells. Um, those cells actually changed their gene expression such that they behaved very much like my normal corneal cells did in that they lowered the MMP1 production and increased their Kera and ALDH3A1 levels. That's really interesting. So do you think that the use of retinoic acid may have a future as a treatment for keratoconus in the future? I think that that is a possibility and definitely a route that should be uh, looked into further. Uh, as my research is currently still uh, very much on the cellular level, uh, it is important to continue um, researching on the effects of topography and other effects that retinoic acid can have on the corneal uh, stroma. But uh, hopefully, um, further research trials can be used to determine whether this will play a role in reversing keratoconus uh, for our patients. Okay, well, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Okay, thank you. I'm speaking with Jasna Pavicic Astolos, and today we're going to be talking about her study, which she had submitted to the College Congress to speak about. Her study was entitled The Treatment of Open Angle Glaucoma and Ocular Hypertension with Preservative-Free Tafluprost-Timolol Fixed-Dose Combination 12-Week anal Analysis, the Visionary Study. So Yasna, thank you very much for joining me today to talk about your study. Could you tell the listeners a bit about your work? Thank you very much. Yes, this study represents 12-week analysis of Visionary Study. 
and visionary study was a multi-center study conducted in 66 sites across Europe. It was a prospective non-interventional study that evaluated effectiveness, toler tolerability and safety of topical preservative-free tofurprostimulol fixed-dose combination treatment in routine clinical practice in adults who suffer from open ankle glaucoma and ocular hypertension and who previously demonstrated an insufficient response to monotherapy either with prostaglandin analog or beta blocker. And secondary endpoints of visionary study were mean IOP change from baseline and interim visits, then responder rate and change in clinical signs and severity of subjective symptoms. This 12-week analysis includes 161 participants from 23 sites. Okay. Could you tell us a bit about the results from your study? Results showed a significant reduction of intraocular pressure from baseline, that is 23.3% at week 4 and 25.3% at week 12. Also, week 12 responder rate was 71.4% and responders were patients included in the study that gained 20% or more of decrease uh, of IOP from baseline. Also, uh, regarding ocular surface health, conjunctival hyperemia decreased in 43.6% of participants and one-third of participants experienced improvements in ocular surface symptoms like uh, conjunctival hyperemia, like uh, foreign body sensation, irritation and dry eye. Coronal uh, fluorescein staining was reduced in almost half of participants and such improvement in ocular surface health is an important issue in quality of uh, patient's life. In cl clinical uh, evaluation, 92.5% of physicians reported improved IOP control versus prior medication and 87.1% of participants reported good or very good tolerability to medication. And we had only uh, one severe adverse event. Uh, we had nine mild uh, adverse events, which were mostly related to the treatment that is HEIs and uh, allergic conjunctivitis and dry eye syndromes, but uh, they resolved during the study period. You mentioned that there was one serious adverse event uh, for patients taking this medication. Could you tell us about that one event? Yes, that was a patient who developed status asthmaticus and that is due to the use of beta blocker in this combination. So we need to be very serious and take um, the full patient history before um, starting with this combination. I see. So I suppose that's, you know, not specific to the medication, but rather, you know, a, a potentially a mistake in prescribing a beta blocker in a patient who has a known diagnosis of asthma. Absolutely, yes. I was just interested by how you told us about how there was a significant reduction in ocular surface symptoms. Could you tell us a bit about why you feel that was and how that came about? Well, conjunctival hyperemia 
uh, was always connected with preservatives. Uh, interestingly, participants included in our study have previously been treated with monotherapy that included both preservative and preservative-free monotherapy, but safety profile of Timolol is well documented. So this hyperemia is mainly caused by the prostaglandin analog that is um, receptors connected with prostaglandin analog and not only by preservative. So uh, in the previous studies that compared um, this fixed combination tofuprostimolol to all other similar fixed combinations that include uh, beta blocker and prostaglandin analog, it was shown that uh, all these fixed combinations have similar results of IOP decrease or reduction, but tofuprostimolol fixed combination cause less superficial ocular side effects and uh, also less conjunctival hyperemia. So uh, receptors that mm -hmm. connect tafloprost is uh, a EP-free receptor and that same receptors is uh, actually connected uh, and considered to cause vasoconstriction and that is thought to be one of the reasons why uh, when using tafloprost, there is a decrease of conjunctival hyperemia. Mm, that's really interesting. So potentially an alternative treatment avenue in patients who are having significant ocular surface symptoms uh, from taking prostaglandin analogues despite having good IOP response. Yes, they, they could be then switched to uh, prostaglandin that does not cause such a conjunctival hyperemia, that is tafloprost. Um, were there any limitations in the study that you feel you should tell us about? Well, this was observational study, so we had um, relatively many patients who left the study without no reason. That was one of the limitations. Also, we never investigated ethnicity. Uh, in the study, only patients who had open angle glaucoma and ocular hypertension were included and uh, we did not investigate switching from combined topical medication, just from monotherapy. But uh, visionary study provided real-world data concerning the treatment effectiveness of tafloprostimol in everyday practice regarding treatment switch without prior treatment washout. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining me today to talk about your work. Thank you very much. And at the end, I would like to thank all my co-authors and collaborators in all 66 centers who work with me on this global project. Thank you very much. That's the end of our first episode of content from College Congress. There'll be more to come later as the week goes by. As always, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to get involved, talk about your work or have any feedback, send us a message at communications at rcops.ac.uk.